Welcome back, Crosswalk Church, and welcome to Faith by Design. We are rolling through this series in the book of James. But before we start any of that, I want you to know that we have announcements, and those announcements actually impact your life. We've learned this week that some of you are not hearing the announcements because there's certain things that are going on that you knew nothing about. And you, I'm using the kind of larger collaborative collective term for you, but some of you aren't catching the announcements. So make sure that at the end of this, because we're living these asynchronous lives, make sure that you go back and listen to our connect time and make sure you know all the announcements. They should be reflected on our website as well. But let's start there so that we can make sure. Some of you just come in for the sermon. Some of you just come in for worship. But make sure you get that bridge time, that gap between the worship and the sermon so that you can see everything that's going on. And not just on Redlands campus. If you're from one of our other campuses, we have information for you as well. And you can always go to our website, www.crosswalkvillage.com and get all the information that you need. And you can do that by campus as well. Anyway, that's enough to get going today. We are in whatever week this is of our Faith by Design series, and we're coming close to the end, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But the first question I want to ask you today is this. How do you end a letter or an email when you're writing it? Now, there's different kind of writing, right? We write to our friends. That seems to be a little easier. Catch you later. Hope things are well. See you soon. Later. Whatever. And then there's those that are a little bit more important to us, right? Kind of our business where we do regards or we do hope things are well, or I don't know. I don't know what you do. Um, I usually say grace and peace because I love that welcome and that goodbye from Paul. But, but who knows what it is you do? It's always a difficult thing to do. But when you begin to write a letter, you have all these things to say, but as you begin to end a letter, the ending is often the hardest part. And I got to tell you, when I first started preaching, I never knew how to end a sermon. And if you notice here, I always end a sermon in prayer. One of the reasons why is because my first church that I worked in, they wanted me to end and then they would have some music and then I would come back and do the prayer. And I never knew quite how to end it. It was really, really difficult for me. Probably the worst ending that I ever had was when I simply said, I'm, I'm done now. That's it. You guys can come up and sing the song. It wasn't smooth, it wasn't spiritual, it was just shocking. Anyway, when you begin to look at the end, you begin to think about the things that you really want to say and then the way that you want to say them. Now, James here is moving us toward the end of the letter. So what he says is really important. There's no doubt that he labored over it and he wanted to make sure that some of these statements were the legacy statements. So what we're seeing here in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, is the beginning of the end. And I don't know if you recognize that moment when it happens, when something is ending, but it is just the beginning of the ending. And so what James does here in these last few verses, and we're not going to end this week, we've got one more week, but and what James does is he sets up the situation, the solution, and then he gives us the secret. And so by giving us these things, he's allowing us to process as we move towards the end. He's actually quite, quite good at this. So let's talk about the situation. And the situation is actually pretty significantly tied to the world that we're living in today. Because he has, he has a tendency here to talk about what it means to live in a hurting world and what it means to be living in a world that's not hurting so much or a happy world, if you will. And perhaps 2020 has 
brought us into an understanding of what it means to live in a hurting world. Now, some of us may have known that much more than others of us, but we're seeing time and time again, seemingly monthly, if not weekly, we are seeing the pain, the, the exacting torment that can happen when it feels like everything's falling apart. And the answers that James is going to give us are certainly not universal, right? He's not giving us answers to a hurting world that will solve all the problems in the world. They're not universal solutions. But what they do speak to is the ubiquity of God. So is it universal or is it ubiquitous? It's speaking about the ubiquitous nature of God, that God is everywhere no matter what, and that we need to bring God everywhere no matter what's, what's happening. While it does not solve all the problems, it's a comfort and a trajectory, and it's certainly an opportunity. So we're going to jump into the text. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if you're following along at home or wherever you happen to be. We'll also put it on the screen right here. It says this, are you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. You see, the situation James is developing here is both negative and positive. But the ubiquity of his answer is clear. Both of these things should lead us back to God. Now, James' admonition to pray stands out among similar requests that we see in the New Testament, specifically for its details and what he's about to tell us and its length. He breaks it down like this. Trouble, often for the sake of the gospel, means that you need to pray. And weakness, often physical, also brings us to prayer, but in a little bit of a different way. So both hardships and happiness should bring us back to God. Prayer and praise should always be the response to the reality of our lives, whether they're incredibly joyful or whether they're incredibly painful. And people are hurting all across the globe and certainly within these United States this week as well. And so our first move should be to lean into prayer. But remember, our lives are like this accretion, this aggregate of all the different things that happen. They kind of build up and make us who we are. And as I was thinking about that today, I was thinking about, I was thinking about lasagna. Have you ever made lasagna? Because when you make lasagna, I am told, now I'm not sure that I've ever made lasagna, but I've watched my wife make it and she's amazing. When you make lasagna, the secret is in what you put between the layers. Right? If our lives are the accretion of good times and bad times, we, then we need to make sure that prayer is what is in between those layers of our lives. I know that when you make lasagna, you put down the noodles, and then you put the cheese, and then you put the sauce. And then you put down another layer of noodles, and then you put the cheese, and then you put the sauce. In the same way, every time something happens in your life, prayer. Is it praise? Is it admonition? Is it, is it praying intercessingly for other people. Prayer goes in between everything that creates a layer in our lives. If we're not doing that, are we really followers of Christ? Are we really seeking his will in our lives? And are we really laying everything out to him? If we think we have to live the good times and the bad times in our lives on our own, then what is the point of calling ourselves believers in Jesus Christ or followers of Jesus Christ? We have this extra bit of sauce that we can put on in between everything. And this is what James admonishes us, admonishes us towards. It says this, simply the key to making good lasagna is making sure there's something in between each one of the layers. For James, like I said, that is prayer and that is praise. 
But he continues on and he begins to deal with if you have a, a physical infirmity, right? He says, are you sick? This is verse 14. Are you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is physical weakness that James is alluding to. And it is the function of the elders in the community to pray for them, anoint them if possible. And the series guide, I told this story of anointing, how I went to, I went to the first anointing that I'd ever been to. I went with a pastor buddy of mine. And when he, when he began to anoint, I thought you took a little drop. You don't take a drop. He didn't take a drop. He put a whole handful, put it over the man's hair, the whole head, and was just caressing his head and was praying over him. The process doesn't make the biggest difference. It's the meaning and the purpose behind it. So why do we anoint someone anyway? Is this a practice that we should do more often? Is it a practice we shouldn't do as much? In the ancient world, it probably had a few meanings, and many of those meanings are still true for us today, right? At first, it was medicinal because oil was used as a skin conditioner and as a medicine. Luke 10, 34 said the Good Samaritan comes to aid and bandages his wounds with oil and wine. We find that in Luke 10. So there was a medicinal nature to anointing someone. As well, there was a pastoral nature. This was an outward physical expression of concern. And it was a means to stimulate faith in the sick person as well. There was also a sacramental portion to it. A sacramental understanding of this practice arose in the early church. Eucheloium, I think is the way that you say it, probably not. But it means prayer and oil. It's a word that actually means prayer and oil. Used for removing sin and strengthening the soul before dying. Which, by the way, that's how I had often come into contact with the idea of anointing. That you anoint someone simply when they're going to die. And there's a few stories about people waking up in the middle of an anointing service and looking around and going, Hey, I'm not dead yet. You guys leave me alone. But of course, there's also the symbolic nature of it that it frequently symbolizes the consecration of persons or things for God's use and service. This is in the Old Testament. Exodus 28, 41 says, After you put these clothes on Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. So I don't know, have you ever been anointed for healing or for any other reason? We had this practice in the One Project. We still do it when we gather. Of course, gatherings a lot different. We've got a few gatherings coming up if you want to check out the website, but they will be on Zoom. So if you have Zoom fatigue, you know, you may want to hold off, but that'll be coming up in October. But the One Project has this anointing moment that is always so incredibly powerful. And we would say a simple prayer for those who are in attendance. And we would put oil on one another's hands and we would pray over them and may Jesus be the king of your life, that your hands would be used for him, that your heart would be given fully to him, and that everything, everything that God has for you. In fact, why don't I just read it? It says, may you be blessed with a spirit of gentleness and a heart that is tender. May you be blessed with a spirit of strength shining within you, May you be blessed with a spirit of compassion and care. May you be blessed with a spirit of courage, daring to be who you are. May you be blessed with a spirit of openness, understanding, and respect. May you be blessed with a spirit of power and make Jesus all. And as we put the oil on one another's hands, we would weep because we knew that was a consecration of who we were to God. 
Now, James says that this is important and that when the elders do that, it, it is actually incredibly powerful when the elders show up to pray and anoint over the sick. He says this, such prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. So what does it mean to offer a prayer in faith? Because this has been misunderstood a bit. And honestly, it's been misused often. And because, you know, the oil is so interesting, it gets most of the attention. But the prayer is actually the most important part. Let's not forget about it. Because quite honestly, I've anointed people with popcorn oil because it was the only thing we had in the church. And not only did they smell great, it was meaningful to them. But there's this phrase in verse 15, right? It says, offer a prayer in faith. Again, this idea has been abused by some in the church over the years. The idea that if you are not fixed, if, if your prayer does not, is not answered, you, you don't actually have enough faith. And what happens is that gives a, a two-pronged burden to those who need it not. As well, if the elders are praying, praying and healing does not happen, then it is, is it their fault let me tell you what a prayer in faith is, and I want you to understand this. A prayer in faith is one that recognizes the supremacy of God and His will in our lives. To have faith is to believe in the greater narrative of God, one that we can't always see. Is it a failure if we do not see healing? Perhaps not, as we still cling to the hope of God, even in the hopeless times. This prayer of faith is believing that God is still in control, even when things feel out of control, and believing that his will ultimately will be done. Now, it's easy to over-spiritualize this and say, well, the, the, the healing will come once, once Jesus comes back, and absolutely that is true. We don't know always the will of God and how God works, but I can tell you this, if you have prayed and not been healed, it's not because you don't believe. It's because there are many things happening in the world. And prayer, of course, is a nuance. We have to have a nuanced understanding of prayer. We don't have time for all of that here. But I want you to know that this is a call to prayer that God has for us. So he set up the situation. This is what's going on. And now James moves into the solution that he believes will also help us in this situation. And he says something that you're not going to like because that's kind of what James has done quite a bit. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Confession is important, but of course in the right circumstances. Again, I think this goes back to our yes being yes and our no being no. I mean, is confession really necessary? But I wonder if that's not a secondary question. What is necessary is the humility and honesty before God that confession draws into us. Confession brings these two things to the forefront of our lives, humility and honesty. We can't confess without these things. To confess is to say immediately, I have done something wrong. I have sinned against myself. I have sinned against others. I have sinned against God. And so we confess. And there's a humility in that because we have to recognize the problems that we have. We have to recognize that we haven't been perfect in this whole thing. Anyone who says, I don't need to confess sins, anyone who says, I don't need forgiveness for something, well, they're not connected to God. How can they be? Because they don't understand where they fit in the universe. Humility and honesty come with confession. But why does this kind of prayer have power? Perhaps because there is nothing standing in the way of you 
and God anymore. Perhaps simply because confession cleans the window that often becomes dark between God and ourselves. Perhaps because confession in honesty and in humility always brings us back to the foot of the cross. Knowing the kind of God that we need, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion. And then it's instilled in us that we might be those kind of people too. Man, I think that James talks about this because he's really interested in us being people of humility and honesty. This is why he talks about sins of speech so often. Because oftentimes sins of speech come from a place of arrogance, not humility. They come from a place of deception, not honesty. I mean, when you look in the mirror, can you really tell yourself in front of God that you have been honest with him, that you've told him everything that you need to tell him? By the way, this is not a, a one-to-one. If I don't confess, I can't go to... It's not like that. What it is, is us humbling our hearts, opening our hearts, and willing to not live in the, the sinful speech that we often have that hurts our witness to God in the world and hurts our ability to continue any conversation. Now, this is not what he's talking about right now, but I can't help but connect it to some of the stuff that has come before because James has talked about it a lot. So we've got the situation, then we've got the solution, the confession and prayer, those are important. But then he gives us a secret. And we all like a secret, right? When somebody tells you that they have a secret, we lean in a little bit. When somebody, you know, it's often gossip, right? But when somebody tells you that they have a secret, your hope is that you will be able to keep it And then sometimes it's so good that you can't even try to keep it because you got to tell somebody. But this is what James is going to do. He's going to tell us a secret. And he uses the example of Elijah. In verse 17, he says, Elijah was a human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. So what's the secret? It's in the first phrase. Elijah was human as we are. So what's the secret there? The secret is that there is no secret. If Elijah was just like us, then perhaps the secret is not so much about our specialness or anything but in God's continued intervention in our lives, our continued connection with God. This is why we, in humility and honesty, confess our sins. The secret is that there's no secret. Everyone has access to that kind of powerful prayer. When we get those things in our lives out of the way and we can pray those prayers to God. And then in verse Chapter 5, verse 18, he finishes it off like this. He kind of brings it around. He says, Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. Now, it's obvious, I think, that he did pray in between, but this is connected with the whole idea, right? It was God that sustained him through the time when there was no prayer, or when there was no rain, sorry. And it was God that connected back to when he prayed for rain, And the earth began to yield crops again. So these texts, and remember, we're not done. We have two more verses to get through. But it's it's this. James begins the end. Because remember, he's beginning the end. James begins the end with a call to prayer, a call to connection, and a call to community. How are we continuing to keep these things in our lives? Prayer? Well, we can always do that, right? Connection and confession, well, that's when we humble ourselves and become honest 
with God about who we are, what we've done, and what we feel. And then community. And that's a hard one for us. In this COVID time, it feels like we don't have community because we're not all gathered in one room together. We're not all worshiping together. But I want to remind you of something. The first century church, except for a few times, didn't have huge gatherings of people. Didn't have thousands upon thousands, although there were moments when that happened. Pentecost is one of them. But by and large, it was people meeting in homes, breaking bread together, sharing their lives together, confessing. Now, you can say confession when you're in amongst friends and amongst people who won't judge you because, because you, you trust them and you know that you can be honest with them. Of course, we're not going to have a confession time with a thousand people in the room. That's inappropriate. But man, with your community, your ecclesia, your actual core group of friends and family, well, with them, you can confess. With them, you can be honest. And the humility will pour out. Now, we've been talking about designing our faith, right? And we have all these great ways of doing it, if you remember that, prototyping and testing and then going back, making sure we use empathy, making sure that we define the problem so that we understand what it is that we're working on, making sure that we put all this together and listen to make sure we understand what the problems are. But as we define our faith, through every single one of these phases, if you will, or developmental areas that we're going to be putting our faith through, we have to make sure it is drenched with prayer. We have to make sure that the prayer is in between, above, before, after every single thing it is that we do. Because if we don't do that, we will run headlong into what we think is right, not necessarily what God thinks is right. And friends, we're living in a difficult time. And without being able to confess to God what is in our hearts, the fear that we have, the anger that we have, the, the frustration that we feel, the, the honest-to-goodness fear of what's happening. If we can't confess those things to God, because remember, confession is not simply about, Lord, I did this or I didn't do that. It's about, God, here's my heart. If we're not going to humble ourselves to that, our heart will become hardened. And when our hearts become hardened, we, we get very defensive. And again, our ideologies become idolatry to us. Rather than putting everything that we are down and saying, Lord, you need to lead me. God, I don't know which direction to go. I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know how everything is going to work. As we design our faith, we need to make sure we include prayer and confession and community all together. Because if we don't do that, then we're missing a major piece of how our faith is able to come together, which is really important for us to do. So today as we leave, and if you have some oil, not that you would necessarily sitting around, but maybe you can come back and watch this with a little oil and you can put it on one another's hands. I'll just say it this way. May you be blessed with a spirit of gentleness and a heart that is tender, humble. May you be blessed with a spirit of strength shining within you that's coming from the Holy Spirit. May you be blessed with a spirit of compassion and care that seeks of others first 
not ourselves, not just of protection, but of compassion. May you be blessed with the spirit of courage, daring to be who you are. God made you the way that you are. And when you come in contact with a high God, you recognize that even for all its foibles, it is loved. May you be blessed with a spirit of openness, of understanding and respect, even for those who don't agree with you and what you think is the way the world should work. And lastly, may you be blessed with the spirit and power and make Jesus all. Friends, I believe a lot of the problems that we have in the world today is because we lose our focus on Jesus. There's nothing more important than that because everything cascades from our understanding of who he is. So that's why you have to go to scripture again and again and again. It is by grace that we've been brought together. It is by grace that we're able to hear these messages and it is by grace that we continue to move forward. May God bless you and may you love well.